0: Uh, Do turn with me to Mark chapter 4. If you've got one of these church Bibles, it's page 1006, Mark chapter 4. I'm going to start reading from verse 35, and then we're going to read into uh, chapter 5. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. That day when evening came, Jesus said to his disciples, Let's go over to the other side. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. They went across the lake to the region of the Gerasenes. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. A large herd of pigs was feeding on a nearby hillside. The demons begged us, ''Send send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them.'' He gave them permission and the impure spirits came out and went into the pigs. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside and the people went out to see what had happened. When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been demon-possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told them about the pigs as well. Then the people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, Go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and all the people were amazed. Thanks, Mary. We're going to sing once more before Mike comes to preach from that passage. Uh, The disciples, the demon-possessed man, the crowd, all stand amazed in the presence of this man, Jesus. And that's what our next song is all about. So let's stand and sing together.
1: sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore my burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. How marvelous. How wonderful. And our song will ever be. Lord, we give you our lives again today. We ask that you would speak to us, show us yourself in your word and change us. Amen. Amen. Please do take your seats and turn back to Mark's gospel. We're in chapter four and five today. If you're new here, most welcome. I'm Mike, I'm one of the pastors, and I'll be speaking on this uh, section of the Bible today. We're doing this series on Mark, and the series title is The World Turned Upside Down. The World Turned Upside Down. And in our passage today, we have two really extreme examples of this, don't we? We get into a small boat with Jesus and his disciples and a storm blows up that is so furious that the disciples fear for their lives but that is not the thing they are most afraid of notice when Jesus gets up and calms the storm with a word then they are really terrified because they don't know who they're dealing with their world is being turned upside down and then we we have a change of scene we meet a man whose life was a complete wreck a disaster a man who's been torn apart And yet, after encountering Jesus, he is found sitting, dressed, restored, and in his right mind, restored to his humanity and to his community. And the change is so radical that, once again, people are terrified by it when Jesus breaks into our world. Now, this is the story that changed changed everything in the Roman world. Christianity began as an obscure, marginal religion, a Jewish sect, so it was thought, a few hundred, a few thousand followers, and yet within four centuries, more than half of the Roman world were professing Christians. It turned their world upside down. And in these first chapters of Mark, we've been having a breathtaking introduction to who Jesus is. And the first half of the book is really asking the question, who is this man? Nobody's ever seen anyone like him before or since. In chapter one, we had an introduction to Jesus that really revealed the secret He is the Messiah, that that word we also translate Christ. He is the Messiah, the Son of God. That means he is God's special king come to sort the world out. And he's given God's Holy Spirit. God anoints him for his mission. And he announces that the kingdom of God has come near. So repent and believe the good news. And repent means turn your whole life around. So the kingdom of God has come near. But we we then start asking, well, where is this kingdom? What does it look like? And so the next few chapters, chapter 1 to 3, are Jesus showing us things about the kingdom. He demonstrates his authority. He's got physical authority. He can heal all kinds of sickness. He's got spiritual authority over the the demonic spirit world. And he has intellectual authority. He teaches with uh, unbelievable authority. He doesn't say as everybody else in the Bible does. He doesn't say, thus says the Lord. He says, truly, I say to you. You notice the difference. And all of this authority is too much for some people. So by chapter 3, the leadership of Israel reject him, and they plot to kill him. But we're still asking, where's the kingdom? Because Jesus is here, and this is great, but where's the kingdom? And so in chapter 4, he teaches about the kingdom using these very puzzling, Almost like riddles, stories called parables. And we thought about those the last two weeks. He says, This kingdom is not what you normally think of. It's like a seed. For example, it's like a growing seed. You put it in the ground, you know, night falls, morning comes, rain, wind, sun, and somehow or other, a, a crop comes up. Because it can't be stopped. Another way this kingdom is like a seed, it's like a mustard seed, very, very small seed but put it in the ground, and it will grow to be a really big plant that can actually shelter birds. And the kingdom, we learn, comes in the lives of those people who hear God's word and receive it deep into their hearts and are changed by it. This kingdom of Jesus, then, is not like an earthly kingdom, like the United Kingdom, uh, which is established by force. This kingdom is like a little insignificant-looking seed planted in the ground, And this kingdom comes to you by hearing. So that's why we do this every week, gather around God's word to hear so that his kingdom will come in our lives. And this kingdom, although it is small, is viable, visible, valuable, and eventually will be vast. So how do you get into the kingdom? How do you get in? How do you join Jesus' family? How do you experience Life-changing truth. The answer is, by faith. Simple? Maybe not as simple as it sounds. We're thinking about faith today. You get into the kingdom by faith. So to enter Jesus' kingdom, you need faith in the king. And that's the main point of these two stories today. The episodes are very different, aren't they? One is set in a boat during a violent storm. The other one is on dry land in a confrontation with a a horrific demon-possessed man. It contains the curious incident of the pigs and the reaction of the townspeople. But the theme that ties all these stories together is faith. To enter the kingdom, you need faith in the king. And these stories are going to teach us some lessons about faith. And faith is, there's more to it, it's more complex, more multi-layered than perhaps we first think. And I want to focus on three sets of characters in the story and ask what Lessons they show us about faith, what we can learn about faith from them. And these three, three sets of characters are the disciples, the demons, and the denizens. And the reason I use the word denizens is that I needed a word that began with D. <laughs> a denizen is a local person, all right? You're denizens of Chesington. Uh, so, disciples, demons, denizens, and finish then by drawing it together and asking, what is faith? which is so important for us to know because it's by faith that we enter the kingdom. So firstly, the disciples have a look at uh, chapter 4, verse 35 and following. And it's evening, and this is happening right after Jesus has been teaching. And here they're exhausted. And Jesus is really exhausted. He's been ministering to all these huge crowds of people. So they say, we're going to get into the boat. And Jesus falls so deeply asleep with his head on a pillow. Nice eyewitness detail there that he actually doesn't hear when the storm comes up and there's probably rain pelting into the boat and it's rocking here and there. And, you know, it's terrifying. After our first year of marriage, Melissa and I went on a holiday to Malta and we traveled up to the north part of Malta and we booked a a little day cruise to a small island called Gozo and we went to get down to this boat, and I, we came onto the dock, and there was this really quite nice big white boat, looked like a bit like a yacht, and so we said, oh, it, there it is, and they said, no, 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 that's not the boat you're going in, and then they, around the back of it was a very small boat that looked like something Captain Pugwash would have <laughs> sailed, and I was thinking, oh, right, is that, is that really the boat we're getting into, you know, so we go down and try not to look scared, got into the boat and went to the trip and it was fine, and the island of Gozo has nothing on it. I don't even think it had cafe. So it was quite boring. We walked around it for a while and got back on this boat, and then a furious storm blew up. And the boat was going like this from side to side, and all the sailors are just standing there, you know, and all of us Brits were absolutely terrified. And I'm saying to Melissa, which side is nearer to to land? You know, so if we have to swim. I'm not a very strong swimmer. I think Melissa was pregnant. She was pregnant for most of our married life, so that's a good guess. It was terrifying. It was absolutely terrifying. Now, Jesus is so exhausted that he's actually so deep asleep. Now, this is a very interesting detail. Just to quickly dwell on that for a moment. This shows us the two natures of Jesus. Jesus has two natures. A fully human nature and a fully divine nature. He's so fully human that he's exhausted. Wiped out. Sparko. And he's so fully divine that he stands up and calms the storm. And we need both of those natures for him to save us. Now, some of these disciples in that boat, they're like the, um, the guys on my boat in Malta, you know. They're, they're experienced. They, they sail boats all the time. It's their living. And they set off. And you know what? This time, they're really fr- afraid because this storm is so furious. And as Mary read it so dramatically for us, he stands up, and says, like you would say to a little dog, quiet, be still. Down the dog goes. Only this isn't a dog, this is the sea. And there's a double miracle here. First of all, it stops, the storm stops, and then the sea becomes completely calm, which wouldn't normally happen. So Bible readers who know their Bible, they know their Old Testament, see something here that's clearly reflecting God himself. Only God can calm the raging seas and calm the storms. We see this in the creation stories God separates water from dry land and creates order from chaos. We see it in the Exodus as God parts the Red Sea and the Israelites come through on dry ground. There's another double miracle. We see it in the Psalms God is the one that speaks to the raging storms. And the disciples see all of this and yet they have no faith or not enough faith. Isn't that striking? And therefore, they respond as, as they do in verse 38. Teach, they wake him up and say, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? And you know, that's what we do when there's a storm in our lives. Don't we? Don't you care? Come back to that. And Jesus is very serious about this. Verse 40, he says, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? They're demonstrating not enough faith or no faith. So what are we learning? What's the lesson here? The lesson, I think, here is that faith in Jesus is not automatic. It's not a feeling, a sentimental feeling, a kind of blind leap in the dark. It is something that must be exercised. You must take what you know about Jesus and apply it in your current situation. And we don't tend to do that, friends. Faith is not passive, just kind of waiting passively for fear to go away. Faith must take action and be active to apply what we know about Jesus to our current circumstances. These men who'd been with Jesus and seen some amazing miracles, they could have spoken to each other and reminded each other of of how loving he was and how powerful he was. They could have spoken the truth to each other, but they didn't. They just panicked. And Jesus basically says to them, look, guys, I've been giving you everything you need for faith, but when the storm came, you didn't exercise it. They lost courage in the storm, and this showed that their faith wasn't strong or deep enough. Now, what about you and me? In your life, where you are right now, in a room this size, there are going to be plenty of people who are going through storms. Uh, Life has become uncertain. Life has become unhappy. Uh, it's unpredictable. You don't know what's coming or go- happening. You don't know, you've got no control like those people in a boat. What's happening in your heart when that happens? And I know because I'm the same. We tend to clutch onto anything, anything that might give us security except trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. But these storms, God has permitted, as an opportunity for you to exercise your faith, like going to a gym. Exercising your faith, putting it into practice, and you, don't, you do it on your own, but you don't have to do it alone. So exercise faith with others, brothers and sisters in community, and help them to speak the truth to you as you go through the storm. And you will grow so much through that in ways you never would have if it was always plain sailing. So that's the first thing we learn from the disciples, is that faith must be active, You have to exercise it. Secondly, the story of these demons. Now, they go in the boat, and they they get through, eventually on quiet waters, and they go to this region called the Gerasenes. There it is in chapter 5, verse 1. And this is, they've gone out of um, Judea, they've gone out of the the Israelite country, and they're now in Gentile territory. And the greatest divide in the ancient world was between Jew and Gentile. The Jews were believers in the one true God and they'd been given God's word and his law and they were to live a, a life that was holy, set apart for God. And they, they were forbidden to, to do certain things, for example, eating pork, which was an unclean, de- declared as an unclean meat. And they were forbidden to do various other things that the Gentiles did. So there's a big cultural gap between the Jews and the Gentiles. And you have to realize that when they go to this this place the region of the gerasenes they're actually now in gentile territory so it's already a bit icky Ooh, we're out of the holy land we're into gentile territory and of course if that isn't unclean enough just about the most uncleanness of unclean then piles upon because you have a gentile man who is possessed by demons unclean it says impure unclean spirits and where does he live in the graveyard. And that's another thing that's unclean in the Bible. Death, decay, rotting bodies, putrefaction. So this is like unclean to the nth degree. There's a guy hanging out in a graveyard in Gentile territory when oh, he's full of demons. Great! Why did we come on this boat trip? You know, take me back to Gozo. <laughs> take me back to Gozo. I know there wasn't a cafe, but I'll go there. But, What's going on? This is not Jesus going for a jolly. He's going, it's an invasion. This is like Dunkirk, but successful. Jesus is going into enemy territory, and we see it because out comes the most powerful demonic force yet seen. You know, just in case anyone was sleeping. Preaching is an art, by the way. What a pitiful spectacle this man is! Oh my days. He lived in the tombs. No one could bind him, not even with a chain. He can't be chained. He's got this sort of weird strength. He'd often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him. And then, verse 5 is so heartbreaking, isn't it? Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones, self harming. What a pitiful spectacle the man is. And he comes up. And immediately what happens? He falls on his knees and shouts out, What do you want with me? Jesus, and immediately identifies who he is. This is demonic, supernatural insight. Jesus, son of the most high God, in God's name don't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, Come out of this man, you impure spirit. Now, this is a apparently power contest, but there is no contest, because the demons just start groveling straight away, and they, they fall on their knees, but they're, trick, they're tricksy, they're very tricky, and they try and negotiate every trick, and Jesus says, what's your name, and he says, my name is Legion, for we are many, so there's loads of these demons in this poor man, and we don't know how this came about. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. And they say, send us among the pigs. Allow us to go into them. So they're asking for permission to stay in the area. But, of course, Jesus calls their bluff because the pigs don't like it, you know. And off they go. Excuse me. There is no competition. But what about the pigs? I heard a great sermon in this church many, many years ago from a wonderful uh, man who's now gone to glory called Simon Foreshaw. He's a very thoughtful man. And he said, hmm, the problem of the pigs. And that's what we've got to come to terms with because Jesus here apparently wrecks uh, somebody's livelihood and 2,000 pigs run. They're so spooked by these demons that they run down a hill and, like lemmings, all jump into the lake and are drowned. So there's no bacon for quite a while. (laughs) gammon or whatever else now what are we to make of this problem to early jewish readers there is no problem because the pigs are so vile and unclean this is a fitting end for the demons and they had cultural and religious reasons to loathe pigs and pigs are filthy aren't they i mean i took our kids to a little farm one time and we were going to see the pigs in the pig enclosure, and, and as I arrived, one pig began to do something so unspeakable <laughs> that I can't even mention it in this, this polite gathering. But my son said, Oh, why is it winging on the other one's face? <laughs> do you really want to eat something like that? You know, over a billion people on this planet think they're impure for good reason. <laughs> but that's not probably your problem with the pigs maybe if you have a Muslim or Jewish background, but for modern Western readers, this looks like animal cruelty and reckless damage of property. Now, important to clarify, Jesus doesn't send the pigs to their death. The demons do. And so in that episode, it provides us with a powerful picture of the seriousness of evil in our world. It shows us the severity of evil. It took that much carnage to free this man. God's enemies have no concern for the environment, animal welfare, or human beings. They are vandals bent on merciless destruction. And in our concern for what happened with the pigs, let's not be like the townsfolk, because they are more concerned about the animals than the man. Lesson about faith. Ready for it? Demons have great theology. They correctly identify Jesus, no one else has. They even do some God talk. You know, in God's name, don't torture me. They're praying theologically correct prayers. But mere knowledge is not enough. That's what we're learning here. Faith does have content, it is based on knowledge, facts, evidence, believing the truth. It's not a blind leap in the dark but that alone is not enough for us James chapter 2 verse 19 says you believe that there is one god good even the demons believe that and shudder so it's good to believe the right truth about god which you get in his bible but it's not enough just to have the knowledge there's got to be more So that's the second lesson we learn, that one's from the demons. So the disciples showed us that faith must be active. You must take what you know and apply it to your circumstances. And the demons show us that just having the right knowledge and doctrine and theology isn't enough. You need more than that. Thirdly and finally, the denizens, the local people. Here they are, verse 14. Uh, Let's pick up the story again. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside. And the people went out to see what had happened. Of course they did. Then when they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, dressed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. Everyone's afraid in this chapter. Those who had seen it told the people what had happened to the demon-possessed man and told about the pigs as well. They're probably trying to get off, aren't they, from being in trouble then the people, what do they do? Began to plead with Jesus to leave. Please go. What an interesting story. Isn't it interesting? These people prefer their swine to their saviour. The one who can restore the most wounded and damaged person stands in their midst and they ask him to leave. It seems that prophet is more important than people. And the most sobering thing here is that Jesus says, okay, and he leaves. What's the lesson? Faith is more than just seeing the power of Jesus, it is about being willing to let him in and take charge of your life. These people saw the power of Jesus, it was undeniable. The biggest problem is that they don't want to lose control. Jesus is capable of anything. If I let him in to my life, what might he require of me? I don't want that. I want, him to, I want to be in control. And that keeps many, many people on the outside. You might, it might be you, by the way, here today. You may have got lots of knowledge about Jesus. You, you went to Sunday school as a child. You, you, you know loads about the Bible. You could probably win the Bible round in the pub quiz. But you're really, at the end of the day, you don't want Jesus in controlling your life. So, what have we learned about faith? It's not a simple thing, is it? It's not simple, but it's a very beautiful thing. The great German reformers Martin Luther and Philip Melanchthon, this is about 500 years ago, said that faith has three parts. Three parts: knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge, assent, and trust. So if you like acronyms, you could say CAT. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge is knowing about something, having the facts. Assent is agreeing that the facts are true, but trust is putting your life on the line. Now, we exercise faith all the time. You exercise faith in that chair to support your weight. For some of us, that takes more faith than others but I want to give an example. I think I've used this before, but it's so good because I used to be a nervous flyer. And it's an example of taking a flight. The first part of faith is knowledge. You understand that this vehicle can leave the runway. Isn't it amazing how they do that? This vehicle can get so fast and powerful that it will leave the runway, go up to 38,000 feet, fly through the air, and then come down safely on a landing strip at the other end. That is knowledge. You understand the content of what a, 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 a plane can do. You also understand that it has to be piloted by someone. The second part, remember, it's knowledge, assent, and trust. So assent is saying, yes, I agree. I believe that that's possible. I believe that this plane can leave the runway. And I believe that the pilot knows how to steer it. And you can, so you can assent to all the true data about planes, but notice you're still not on the plane. Because the third part has to kick in for faith. That is trust. Trust is, you get on the plane, you sit down, and you trust your—you put your life in the pilot's hands, don't you? And if there are any of those airplane movies about planes having an accident, you don't watch them on the screen. <laughs> now, so intrinsic to this is knowing, assenting, and then trusting, and that trusting involves obedience. I'm getting on the plane, I'm going to do what they say. The Heidelberg Catechism from 1563 says this. What is saving faith? Answer. True faith is not only sure knowledge, whereby I hold for truth all that God has revealed to us in his word, but also firm confidence, which the Holy Spirit works in my heart by the gospel. That not only to other people, but to me too, remission of sins, everlasting righteousness, salvation are freely given by God merely of grace and only for the sake of Christ's merits knowledge, assent, and trust now is there anyone in our story today who actually does have true faith like that can you see one character who has faith like that it's the man who was rescued from demons he's the example of true faith here look how he responds to Jesus verse 15 he is sitting he assumes the posture of a disciple. He wants to learn. Verse eighteen. He wants to be a disciple. He begs to go with Jesus. I want to follow you, Jesus. He says. And notice this man's response when he doesn't get what he asked for. He wants, with all his heart, to be with Jesus. Maybe he wants to be one of the key men. You know the disciples in the boat going off on the mission. And no, Jesus says no. It's not for you, my friend. My call for you is to go back home. Go to your family, go back to your own people, and be a witness for me there. That's your job. Off you go. And the man obeyed. So verse 20, we see faith in action. The man went away, did what Jesus told him, and he began to tell in the Decapolis 10 cities how much Jesus had done for him. We don't even know his name. But this man is the first apostle to the Gentiles. He listened and obeyed the call of Jesus for his life. Now look, we all have faith in someone or something. And I'm not talking about the chair or even the airplane now. I'm talking about the really big things in your life. The things you really count on. The things you've bet your life on. The question is, what are you putting your faith in to run your life what makes you think, think you can rest in that? What's the thing or person that makes you feel secure or that you are someone? Because that's what you're putting your faith in. It, co- it could be the family. A lot of families in this church. If our hope of a safe place in the world is totally invested in our family, in our marriage, our spouse, in possibly having children, in seeing those children succeed, in seeing those children become believers, then we are putting faith, ultimate faith, in family. And that is a risky move, isn't it? Because people always disappoint and family can never quite live up to our expectations. And the more anxious you are about your family, friends, it might reveal that's where you're putting too much faith. It's okay to worry about your family, but, but if, it's, if you're so anxious about it, you, it just dis- disturbs your peace, then, and you can't sleep and all the rest of it, then, then that's probably a sign of f- faith's gone off. Others uh, put their trust in their career, and it drives them to overwork. They don't just work the hours they're supposed to do. They don't just do a good job. They have to be there before everyone else and stay later. And they're checking their phone all the time. And the weekends are never free from work. And work is exhausting them. It's taking their life away from them. It's slowly destroying them, but they can't see it because career is so important because it's my career that makes me who I am. It's my career that validates me as a person. Without it, I'm nothing. So we kid ourselves about the effect of the career on the rest of our life, how it erodes us, erodes our family life, our friendships. It's a bad master if you put your faith, your ultimate faith in your career. And then money. We talked a bit about money last week. You know, we can put our faith in money. If I have enough set away, if I've got enough in my pension fund, bank balance, savings, house, pay down the mortgage, wouldn't that be good? Don't have a credit card bill um, and a good income. then Surely then I'd be safe. Well, you know how insecure it all is. You know? You just have to fill your car up once and you'll lose most of that money. I mean... I was talking to a friend last weekend who was actually a millionaire, and he retired quite young because he would made so much money, and he told me that the first month of this year, he's lost 12%. <laughs> That's quite a chunk, isn't it? I don't know how much he's got. Money can't be trusted. So faith in any pilot, except Jesus Christ to fly the plane of your life, will destroy you bit by bit. Only Jesus can restore you to full humanity and the freedom that that is, like that man. Beautiful picture of a Christian sitting there, clothed, restored in his right mind. Saying, How can I, can I follow you? And the paradox, this is a real paradox here of faith. Jesus demands that you give yourself to him entirely. All of you goes in, hold nothing back. You give up control. And guess what? then you find you're restored. As I submit to his lordship, he surrounds me and brings me into his kingdom, and I become new. I pray that would be true for every single one of you. Put your faith in anyone except Jesus Christ, and life slowly unravels. That demon-possessed man, you know, he's a picture of all of us. Before we know Jesus, we're wrapped up in ourselves, living in our own world our passions are out of control we're unclean, we harm ourselves we need a rescuer this man lived among the tombs with death all around him naked and ashamed without hope and without God so did we he's oppressed by the powers of darkness crying out in pain and harming himself beyond the reach of any human power so were we And then he meets Jesus. The Savior not only sets him free from tyranny, but humiliates his enemies by driving them and all the uncleanness and impurity that they represent down the cliff and into the sea. The man is restored and clothed in new garments, visibly transformed, such that those who have known him before come to fear the power of Jesus. He can change you, whoever you are. Whatever you, whoever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you think about yourself, Jesus Christ is powerful enough to transform you. And so he's desperate to follow his new Lord and Master. Is this you? Have you seen this about yourself? Final question. How do we get to being, sit- to being sat, clothed, and in our right mind? Where does this faith take us? What do we got to put faith in? I'll, re- I'll read a quote here from Professor Tom Wright, great Bible scholar. The bigger story of Mark's gospel gives us the answer. At the climax of Mark's story, Jesus himself will end up naked, isolated, outside the town, among the tombs, shouting incomprehensible things as he's torn apart on the cross by the standard Roman torture as his flesh is torn to ribbons by the sharp stones in the Roman lash. And that, Mark is saying, is how the demons will be dealt with. The cross. That is how healing takes place. At the cross, where he is torn apart so that you can be put back together. Jesus is coming to share our plight. To let the enemy do its worst to him to take the full force of evil on himself and let others go free. So let's embrace that freedom today, shall we? And in the week ahead, and ask God to give us ever-growing true faith. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for this passage and for its honesty about your greatest followers, these disciples. How fearful and how like us they are. And this man who seemed beyond hope, No one could reach him. Completely lost case, but Jesus steps in and everything changes. So I pray now in faith for this congregation and ask that you would restore us to our full humanity, that we would see you on your cross and cry out and cling to you once again. And there may be one person here today who is actually at the point where they think it's time. It's time to submit my life to you, to let you take control. Help him or her over the threshold, we pray. Amen. Amen. Friends, we're going to sing again, turn those thoughts into worship. So please stand when the musicians begin.